I'm sure that those of you who have kids probably have several children's Bibles lying around your house, and we can find these all over. There are many different ones, but one of the things that you look for in a children's Bible is an emphasis on what's called the meta-narrative of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. All of it centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. So you look for a story Bible that will put together the pieces in such a way that demonstrates that the Bible is one story. It's one story with one central character. And this really becomes so clear to us during Christmas, during Advent, because it's during this time that we are reading lots of Old Testament texts that center on Christ, that, that prophesy His coming. And then we are looking at passages in the New Testament that describe His coming, and then there's the orientation towards the future, which has not come yet, when Christ will return and bring a new heaven and a new earth. And so it's at a time like this that uh, this meta-narrative of Scripture uh, gets clearer to us. It comes into focus more. So that's what we ought to be looking for. And yet, within this framework, this meta-narrative, there is also a place for wisdom lessons, character studies, and yes, examples to follow. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't want to say, look, it's, it's all about the story, the meta-narrative centered on Christ, and, and, and miss all of the little details that we find in the Bible that do, in fact, give us wisdom instruction and do give us lessons for life and examples to follow. So James, for example, puts Job forward for us as an example of perseverance in James chapter 5 verse 11. And we recognize as we come to the Bible and we find these examples of certain attributes, we find these examples within the pages of Scripture, we recognize always that what we are seeing is not human merit, but God's grace. We're seeing God's grace at work in the fabric of the lives of God's people as we see these character traits or we see these, these particular characteristics played out in Scripture. And in Romans chapter 4, verses 17 to 22, the Apostle Paul does something similar with Abraham and specifically Abraham's faith. So if you would go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verses 17 to 22. I'll just pause here and say that we, uh, I decided not to go somewhere else for Advent this year. We've been doing that in previous years, but as I got to thinking about where else we would go, I thought, where else could you go? I mean, when you look at the beginning of Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you look at uh, Romans 5, 12 and following, where Jesus is presented as the second Adam, I thought, we are all over Advent right here. We're all over uh, 
Christmas. So, I thought it would be better for us just to keep going through Romans where we are. And we find ourselves in chapter 4, verses 17 to 22. The title for the sermon this morning is The Faith of Abraham. Last week we looked at the promise to Abraham, and today we look at the faith of Abraham. The promise to Abraham last week, the promise that he and his offspring, all those who believe, will inherit the world, heirs of the whole world, and we talked about that. This promise came through faith, not through the law. The law was not present there when God made these promises to Abraham. If it were by the law we talked about last week, then None of us would reach that final destination promised. None of us would attain to the inheritance because where there is law, there is transgression. And where there is transgression, there is wrath or judgment. It is by grace and is guaranteed to all who believe. Whether Jews or Gentiles, it is guaranteed for all of us who are Abraham's offspring by Faith. Abraham is the father of all who believe. That's what we covered last week. The big question of Romans chapters 1 to 4 is how are we justified? Remember, that's the big question. As we look at all of these various paragraphs and passages, the big question of this part of Romans is how are we justified or declared right with God? And the answer that Paul gives to this question is by faith alone. And then he unpacks that a little as he goes into chapter 4. Faith apart from works. And particularly for the Jewish hearer and the Gentiles who would be tempted to become Jews first in order to become Christians, we also see faith apart from circumcision. Faith apart from works faith apart from circumcision, and then last week we saw faith apart from the law. But what is faith? What is this thing called faith? You know, one of the things we do when we come to the Bible is uh, one one way to study a passage of Scripture is to do word studies. And uh, there have been many things written about this, but this is probably one of the areas where we, we, uh, we tend to fall apart most. We get, we get a, a little bit of word study going in, on a, in a particular passage, and what we do is we, have all kind, we make all kinds of errors in our interpretation in the way we study a specific word. We, we make everything about that word, and we go and we trace out the etymology of the word, and so forth, and that is how we understand its meaning. But the way we understand a word is in its context. And what Paul wants to do is he doesn't want to leave us scratching our heads wondering what is faith. He wants to show us. He wants to give us a very clear description by way of illustration. What kind of faith are we talking about, Paul? You have so much to say about faith. It's not works. It's not circumcision. It's not law. It's faith. What is that? What is faith? What does it look like in practice? How do we define it? But even more, what does it look like in life? 
To answer that question, Paul uses Abraham, the father of faith, as the great illustration, or going back to my opening words, as the great example of faith. Just as James used Job as the great example of perseverance, Paul is here using Abraham as the great quintessential example of faith. The faith by which we are justified is the faith that Abraham had. And Paul describes it for us in verses 17 to 22. Now last week I went up into 17, and this week I'm going to pick back up in the middle of that verse. So 17b, all the way through to verse 22. As Thomas Schreiner says, If people become children of Abraham by having the faith of Abraham, then it is crucial to determine the kind of faith that Abraham had. Paul explicates the nature of Abraham's faith in this paragraph. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Kent Hughes describes the passage this way. I like this. It's pretty vivid. It is as if Paul was able to unfasten the wing nuts holding down the top of Abraham's head and give us an intimate look at the inner workings of this great man of faith. So we get to look down deep into his mind, into his heart, but even more, I think, into the way it played out in his life, this faith of our father, Abraham. What we will see today is in the heart of every true Christian. So understand that before we go any further. We're not talking about exceptional faith, although I think in Abraham we do see faithful faith. We do see a premier example of faith lived out. But it's important for us not to forget as we go through this passage that what we are going to be reading about Abraham, this is packed into the heart of every true believer, every true Christian. And what that means is that if you're reading through this passage and there just is no correspondence really between your own heart, your own life, your own way of thinking and relating to God's word, God's promises and so forth, there's no correspondence between what we're reading here in the life of Abraham and what you're experiencing in your own life, that's a good indicator for you. A good indicator that you may not be an offspring of this Abraham. You may not have come in through the seed of Abraham who is Christ. That you may not be a believer. You may not be a Christian. So let this passage both encourage and affirm and let it also challenge and convict. Let it be to you a mirror wherein you look at your own life. Let me just also say this. I'll come back to this at the end. We are seeing something that is in the heart of every true believer, every true Christian, but imperfectly yet truly. So we're seeing something that it's not going to be lived out perfectly. We're not going to have perfect faith, but it will be there. It is true faith, nonetheless. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word. 
And I'm going to pick up in verse 13 because this passage bleeds together uh, with uh, today's passage. And at least in the ESV Bible, uh, as I, I think many of you have and as we use here, uh, the, the two passages are crammed together. So we will begin reading in verse 13. This is the Word of God. It is perfect and profitable for His people. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Why? Verse 15, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And then this is specifically is where we're going to pick up today as we get a description of Abraham's faith. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And by the way, that's quoting from the beginning of Genesis 15 where God has just taken him out to look at the starry sky. And God points at the sky and says, you see, you can't count all those stars, so too will be your offspring, Abraham. So shall your offspring be. Picking up verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You can go ahead and be seated. We're going to stop there, pick up next week with those latter verses, 23 to 25, as we get down a little deeper into uh, the Christian's own experience post Christ's coming. But for now, I want us to focus in on the faith of Abraham. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Ask that God would, would grow our faith through this time. I've always found this passage so comforting. I've always found this passage so helpful in, uh, in showing us what the Christian life looks like. And in a sense, Paul takes those many chapters of Genesis, beginning in chapter 12, and he boils it down to this little paragraph. And this, this is meant to be a summary, and we also find it in Hebrews 11. It's meant to be a summary of Abraham's life, essentially, of all those narratives that we encountered in Genesis. Here's the sum of it all, as Paul gives it to us in Romans 4. So let's pray and ask for God's help. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you today for your word. And we thank you that we stand before you this day clothed in Christ that we have as Christians uh, him covering us. His blood covers us. He was put forward as a propitiation for our sins. We have redemption 
in his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you that you do not count our sins against us. We thank you that our lawless deeds have been forgiven and our sins have been covered. We thank you that when the destroyer passes by us, he keeps going because he sees the blood. Father, we thank you that you have demonstrated your love for us in putting your son on the cross to save us and then in our own lives individually converting us from a life of darkness from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your son to the kingdom of light god we just give you praise this morning we specifically give you praise for the lord jesus christ who came into the world to save sinners, whom you sent, your only Son, and that by believing in Him we will not perish, but have eternal life. He is the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in Him, though He die, He shall live. God, we praise You for this great hope, just as we read here with Abraham, this hope that he had. We praise you that through Christ we have this hope that everyone whom you, Father, have given to the Son, he will raise up on the last day. God, we thank you for both comings of Christ. And we recognize, Lord, we are between those comings this morning. And we are daily attacked by the enemy. We are daily tempted to live for ourselves, to live for our own comforts and our own glory. And you call us through your word today, once again, to follow Jesus. And so God, today help us by your Holy Spirit, through your word, to follow Jesus, to trust in him alone, to live for his glory, for the sake of his name. In his name we pray, amen. As we look at Paul's description of Abraham's faith, there are two very basic things we can't miss. And it was challenging going through this passage trying to determine how to divide this up because it really is a running, one single running theme and and there are bits of it just in every verse. You know, some passages, and if you've taught the Bible in a a Sunday school class or or even um, if you teach the kids, Sometimes some passages are easier to break up. You see the dividing lines and you can kind of lay them out. This passage is a little more difficult. So as I went through it, I thought, well, what, what is most basic here that we need to see in light of what we've seen so far? And here we are, two things that we just cannot miss. We'll look at the trees, but this is the forest. First, the glorious object, and second, the glorifying response. And we'll look at what I mean by each of these. These are the two big ideas. So let's look at the first one, the glorious object. You've probably heard people talk about faith in general as a virtue, and you probably have done the same thing. And I jokingly said, uh, a couple of weeks ago that you'll find this oftentimes around Christmas in Christmas movies, Hallmark movies. Uh, my parents like the Hallmark movies. I'm not hating on the Hallmark movies, but I am saying that this is the sort of thing that you find. 
very generic, stripped-down ideas uh, of Christmas and all that Christmas entails. And what you tend to hear in the culture is they are things like, have a little faith. Phrases like that where faith in general is held up as a virtue in and of itself. But this is not the case. Faith in and of itself carries no virtue at all. The virtue of faith, listen to this, this is so important. The virtue of faith depends entirely on the object believed. To believe in something that is unreliable or false is naive and foolish at best. Not a virtue. General faith, this vague idea of faith, not a virtue unless the object is to be trusted. And probably what is meant oftentimes is have a little optimism or something like that. But I just want to make sure we understand that faith has its very meaning and its virtue based on its object. So as Paul sets out to describe Abraham's faith, he does not begin with what is inside of Abraham. Notice that. It's very important. We could quickly go there. We could quickly dissect Abraham's response, what Abraham is thinking, what Abraham is feeling, what Abraham does in response to his thoughts and his feelings. That is not where Paul goes when he describes Abraham's faith. He goes outside of Abraham because faith has no meaning apart from the object. He doesn't begin with the expression of faith, but rather the object of faith. The one in whom Abraham believed. Look at the latter part of verse 17. In the presence, so here we have God promising Abraham he's going to be the father of many, many nations. And this promise, and Abraham responding to this promise is in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I remember when I came to this passage years ago and I was working through this, trying to memorize these verses, I remember thinking it just, that just seems kind of inserted a little bit. You know, it's not something, all of this lofty language about God is, you know, you're expecting the next verse In hope, he believed against hope. You're you're expecting to begin to sort of get into Abraham's faith. And you get this, this little theological, this theologically packed statement about who God is. Almost reads a little bit like an aside. What is all of this? What we read here is a glorious description of God's power. Right at the front gate of Abraham's faith, his life-giving, resurrecting, creative power, his glory as expressed through his power. Now, God's glory is expressed through all of his excellencies, as John Piper frequently says, all of his perfections, 
all of his attributes or characteristics, God is shown to be glorious in all of these. But one aspect, a very significant aspect of his glorious nature is his power, his omnipotence, his glory as expressed through his power. This is the God who can. Who can? This is the glorious object of Abraham's faith. To put it in the words of Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I, this is God speaking through Moses, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. This is absolute power. God is absolutely able to do anything, period. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. This is the God of Abraham. And what we have in the case of Abraham is that the God who can, the God I just read about from those scriptures, the God introduced by Paul at the end of verse 17 in this glorious way, The God who can is brought together with the circumstances that cannot. God who can, circumstances that cannot. And in the case of Abraham, those two are brought together in this dramatic way. God speaks, and that word is a word of promise. So verse 17, quoting from Genesis 17, 5. I have made you the father of many nations. And then verse 18, quoting from Genesis 15, 5. So shall your offspring be. And as I said before, this is right after God takes him outside and shows him all of the stars in the sky. But there's a massive problem here. In the midst of all this promising, and with regard to these specific promises, there is a massive problem. The situation on the ground doesn't line up with God's promises at all. It's not just that God is promising some big things. It's that God's promises are are absolutely contrary to the lived experience on the ground in Abraham's life. God is telling Abraham that he's going to have children. And not just children, but many descendants. And not just descendants, but many nations. But when Abraham looks around at his life, what does he see? It's the amazing story of the Bible that God would choose to work in this way. Just, just, just stop for a moment. Think about that. That God would work all of this out in the way that he did through Sarai and Abram. 
What a testimony to the glory of God, to his power, to his sovereignty, to his ability to enter into any of our broken situations and circumstances and to bring life. So what does it say in verse 19? As Abraham looks around at his life on the ground, he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I like to think of this as a perfect blend of impossibility. That's the way God sets it up. Not just some, some problems, some obstacles to overcome, a few issues that need to be worked through before we can move forward. No, this is a perfect blend of impossibility. It is a perfect storm of cannot, old age, and barrenness. From a human perspective, there are many promises that Abraham could have easily gotten on board with. But many descendants was not one of them. And that's what God chose to do. Humanly impossible. The picture is one of deadness and non-existence. In addition to saying that Abraham's body was as good as dead, Paul intentionally uses the Greek word for deadness when describing Sarah's womb. And I think there's a little note here uh, in your ESV to that effect. But uh, barrenness is is really not the best way to translate this. That's the, the ultimate meaning, but Paul is using a play on words here. He wants to say specifically, Abraham is as good as dead and Sarah's womb is dead. Deadness. No life, no life-giving capacity, and no future prospects. Nothing coming down the line. Lots of cannot, lots of cannot. And against this comes the God who can. And that is why Paul says at the beginning of verse 18, in hope, He believed against hope. There is no hope from a human perspective, but Abraham hopes in God. He doesn't hope in his circumstances at all. He hopes exclusively in God. God had spoken, God had promised, and Abraham trusted in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Oh, deadness? not a problem because God makes alive. God can take something that is not and make it so that it, is, that it will be. Not a problem. I like the way John Calvin applies this to our lives. I'll give you a quote here from Calvin as he takes what's going on in Abraham's circumstances and he brings that to home for us. Let us also remember That the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. I'm just going to stop there for a minute. It is easy to read this and say, yeah, Abraham's situation was impossible. There was a lot of cannot in Abraham's life down on the ground. 
But how are we to understand all of that impossibility and cannot in our own lives? And I think that's what Calvin is doing here. He's saying, look, we're in the same boat. How so? All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. Really? We'll live forever? Falling apart over here. The world is falling apart. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. God looks at me and he sees righteousness, but I'm a sinner. He testifies that he is propitious and propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must, as Calvin says, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Everywhere we look in our lives, we have reason based on our circumstances to not hope. To be, we, we have things that are against hope. That's what Calvin is saying. In our condition in this world, in our circumstances, we have all kinds of things that are against hope. So we're very much like Abraham, who in hope believed against hope. But as Calvin here talks about closing our eyes, make no mistake, this is not blind faith. Rather, it is faith in a glorious object. The one who reveals himself, his power, his goodness through his works, and especially through his word. So let me just throw this question out there. Where does this hopeful, circumstance-defying faith come from? And we get an answer. In Scripture, we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ or through the word of Christ. How is it that we come to see God as the God who can? How is it that we come to hear God's promises? We must find it in the word of God. And so this tells us that if we go about life divorced from the word of God, we are going to live a pretty hopeless existence. Because everywhere we look in this world, we see brokenness, we see fallenness. Where we look into our own hearts, we see sinfulness. It's against hope. But when we open up God's holy word, when we hear his word of promise, we are filled with hope. A circumstance-defying hope. We are filled with faith in the God of hope. So we've seen the most important aspect of Abraham's faith. It looked away from the impossible to the God who can. As verse 21 says, that God was able to do what he had promised. And we see this in Hebrews where here's Abraham. He's going to sacrifice Isaac. And you read the passage in Genesis 22, and it's just kind of startling. You, you read the very beginning, and God tells Abraham to do it. And he's like, okay. He just starts marching along doing it. And in one sense, you're like, wow, 
look at his, his faith and his obedience to God. It's just there's, there's no hesitation at all. And, and that is definitely part of what needs to be addressed there. But what we find in Hebrews 11 is that deep down in Abraham's heart, he really believed that if he did indeed sacrifice Isaac, God was just going to raise him from the dead. It probably is that that Paul is alluding to here. No matter what, God was able to bring the promises to fulfillment. But now let's venture a little deeper into Abraham's heart. And that, comes to, that brings us to our second point, the glorifying response. So we've seen the glorious object, God. We have to go outside of Abraham first, not inside of Abraham But now let's travel inside of Abraham and look at his glorifying response. Look at all of verses 19 to 22. We're going to be jumping around within this passage, but I want to reread all of these verses. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness or deadness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The last verse in this passage, verse 22, reminds us what we're even talking about. So we can't lose sight of Paul's main idea throughout all of these verses and all of these paragraphs. He's talking about justification by faith. He's talking about justifying faith. This was the faith that was credited to Abraham as righteousness, as Genesis 15, 6 says. And as Paul quotes at the beginning of Romans 4, it was a justifying response to God. What we're reading, this faith, God credited to Abraham as righteousness. He counted it to him in his grace as righteousness. But we also see here that it was a glorifying response. It was a justifying response, but it was also a glorifying response. Look at verse 20 again. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. You'll remember from Paul's description of human sinfulness in Romans 1 and 2, what was the fundamental issue? What is at the heart or at the base of all human sin? A failure to give God glory. A failure to honor God. At the heart of all sin is dishonoring God. It is trampling on His honor. We saw that in the latter part of Romans 1 with respect to the Gentiles. And then we saw that in Romans 2 as Paul was describing his, the Jews of his day. So whether Jew or Gentile, all have sinned, Paul will say in Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. God. This really is the most pressing issue. The reason why God will send you to hell if you are not a Christian is not because you've made a mess of your life. 
It's because you've trampled on his glory. You've trampled on the king's glory. He made you for one reason, for his glory. That's why you exist. That's why you breathe. That's why you have children and a spouse, food to eat, a house to live in, for his glory, everything, your job, your money, your sweater, your new shoes, all of it for the glory of God. And to exist for this reason and to not give the eternal, infinite God glory is worthy of an eternal, infinite punishment, separation from him in hell. So it's not just that you've brought plight on your own life or the lives of those around you. It is that you have trampled on the glory and honor of your creator. That's the heart of sin. And so what do we find here with Abraham? What we're told is that faith is the response that glorifies God. What's the answer for the depraved Gentile and the self-righteous hypocritical Jew? It is faith. Faith justifies and glorifies. Let me say this. When we tend to think about glorifying God, I guarantee you, we were to go around this morning and talk about what does it mean to glorify God, typically what will happen is we'll start thinking about the things we do. We do this and that brings God glory. And yes, of course, Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your good deeds be shown forth. Let them shine forth. The world will see them and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. Yes, our deeds do glorify God. But more fundamental and important than all of that is faith. We glorify God by trusting Him. So if we're not trusting Him, but we're doing all these things, we're not glorifying God. Everything not done in faith is sin. Paul will say at the end of Romans 14, it is not in our doing. Busy Christian, listen. It is not in your doing. It is in your trusting that the glory trampling is reversed in your life and in your heart. Let me give you one more quote from Calvin on this passage. I just think it's so fitting. It must be observed that no greater honor can be given to God than by faith to seal his truth. As on the other hand, no greater dishonor can be done to him than to refuse his offered favor or to discredit his word. It is hence the chief thing in honoring God, obediently to embrace his promises and true religion begins with faith. I think this says something to those who are struggling with assurance of salvation. Do not make God a liar. Trust him. Trust him in what he has promised. Receive his grace for yourself and trust in him. Honor him. Glorify him. Dishonor him no longer by failure to believe. But glorify this God by faith. 
As Paul describes it, Abraham's faith grew stronger, not weaker in the face of his circumstances. The object of his faith was bigger than the obstacles. And that, like I said before, these were not just a few obstacles scattered in front of him that he had to somehow get around. These obstacles were fundamental to the fulfillment of the promises. These obstacles were massive against hope. Instead of wavering, or being uncertain within himself. That's the image of wavering. Just, oh, oh, uncertainty within our own minds. We're told here in verse 21 that he was fully convinced that God could bring it to pass. Do you believe that? God's going to raise you? You don't have to be afraid of death. Though you'll die, you will live. That Christ will come again. And he's going to take you to himself. And you will forever be with the Lord. That, that God will, will bring you to himself and purify you of all sin for eternity. That Jesus has gone away to prepare a home for you. And he will come, up, come back and receive you to himself. God can bring it to pass. Our lives are pretty mundane, uneventful. You go to a funeral and you're like, that's it. The person has, has died. And sometimes it's just so hard for us to think. You know, we say, yes, they're with Jesus, but, but sometimes it, everything just seems so ordinary, so unglorious. It, it just does not seem as though this is, all of this is really happening beyond us, where we cannot see it. But just as Abraham believed in all these things coming to pass, in the ordinariness of his life, we trust in God as well. But there's a problem. This description of Abraham, I mean, is it really true to life? I mean, we read about Abraham in Genesis. Was Abraham... Really, one who did not waver? I mean, didn't we talk about Abraham's feeble faith? Didn't we talk about Abraham's sin? Is Paul just sort of uh, idealizing Abraham here? Or is he getting to the truth of the story? What about Hagar? Genesis 16. I mean, that was not a moment of glorious faith. That was not a moment where we saw this full trust in God's promises, right? Well, I like the way Thomas Schreiner explains this objection or counters this objection. He says the words he did not doubt characterize or he did not waver characterize the basic pattern and direction of Abraham's life which was ultimately typified by trust in God, not by doubt. He didn't waver in the sense that he persevered and persisted in faith. And we saw that. We saw these little bumps along the path. And Genesis 16 was a prime example of that. He's taking the promises into his own hands. But what we talked about was he still believes the promises. God's going to do it. Abraham is just foolish in taking it into his own hands and listening to his wife in doing that. But he believes God's promises are going to come to be. He doesn't wait on God as he should have. 
but he trusts him. And we see it chapter after chapter as we're going from Genesis 12 all the way up until we get to Isaac. We're watching Abraham and he persists. He continues one foot in front of another. That's not to say that he doesn't stumble. It's not to say that his knees aren't shaking weak. But it is to say that one foot goes in front of another. He stays the course of faith. As we close this morning, I just want to say next week we will talk more about this faith as it applies to the Christian, to the one who looks back to Christ's death and resurrection. As we come to those latter verses, Paul will take all that he's saying about Abraham and he's going to bring it directly to bear on the Christian. So we'll talk about that more next week. But I want to finish this morning with just a few implications before we close in prayer. Just a few things to take with us as we leave. First, as Christians, we struggle, but we overcome. We do not fall away. And so look, this morning, you might be in one of those moments where you're just struggling really struggling. And what you can do is look back at the life of Abraham and you can see how he too struggled and yet Paul could say this about his faith. So take heart, Christian, that God is sustaining your faith. He will preserve your faith and he will see you through to the end. Take hold of him in hope. Cling to his promises. Second, Christ believed perfectly in our place. Abraham's faith was not perfect. Our faith is not perfect, but Christ lived perfectly. When tempted by Satan, he did not fall. He did not fail. He was perfect in every single respect. One of the best sermons I've ever heard was by Paul Washer on this very thing. At the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where he talked about Christ not being a sinner. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Incomprehensible that Christ never sinned. Because even when we're not explicitly sinning, our motives are twisted. There's a web of duplicity and and selfishness and pride just involved in everything we do. Woe is me, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul will say at the end of Romans 7. This is the experience of any honest Christian. We look into our heart but for 10 seconds and we see things there that we loathe. Not so with Christ. He was perfect. He obeyed the Father perfectly. It was his very food and drink to do the Father's will. Often, we care little for the Father's will Christ, not so. He always followed the Father. And he stands perfectly in our place before the eyes of God who in Christ Jesus sees us perfect. So take heart this morning, Christian. Christ is your righteousness. Christ 
is the one whom God sees on your behalf. And thirdly, as we finish up today, let Abraham's faith, as I said at the beginning, let Abraham's faith test you. Does what we've read here today correspond with your experience? Do you have justifying faith? Just answer the question quickly. Do you have God-glorifying faith? Do you have the faith we read of here? Against hope, in hope. In the promises of God. Do you know the promises of God through Christ? Do you trust the promises of God? Are you ready to face death? Some of us more squeamish, more timid, or whatever else than others. Some of us strong in courage, others less so. But regardless of that, are you ready to face death? Are you ready to face persecution, even martyrdom, knowing that though you die, you shall live? Do you trust in the God of Abraham? And if not, there's an invitation to you this morning. Trust in God. Trust in God through Christ. Call out to him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one who trusts in him will be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. God, even as we think about this thing called faith, we read a passage like Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, where we're told that faith itself is a gift, that it's a gift from the Spirit, that you make our hearts so that they can believe. By your grace, in a moment of regeneration, you as we read in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you give us new hearts. You write your law upon our hearts. You, you give us the gift of faith that we would fear you and love you and look to you. We would have no faith apart from you. We are dead in our trespasses and sins before you make us alive. So God, we just praise you this morning for your gifts. We praise you for the gift of faith, for the gift of counting our faith, though it be imperfect, counting it as righteousness, and doing all of this because of the perfect righteousness of Christ in our place as the propitiation for our sins, put forward as the atoning sacrifice before your face, a sweet-smelling aroma to your holy face. God, we thank you that you have made Christ our righteousness. We thank you that you worked so majestically in history. As we look back and think about Abraham and Sarah, Lord, and just, it's amazing, God. You were there with him in the ordinary of life. And look at what you have done and are going to do as people from every tribe, tongue, and nation one day recline at table at a great banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, what, 
God glorifying there will be on that day when Abraham sees what he could not see in life and at his death, that all the families of the earth have been blessed through his seed and that he has offspring innumerable as the stars of heaven. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.